Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. To live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Dr. Teresa Larson is a leader, wife, mother of two young men, Marine Corps engineer veteran, author of Warrior, and founder of Movement Rx, a company that gives people the tools to live a lifetime of emotional and physical freedom, no matter your ability, skin color, gender identity, religion, or nationality. Her experiences and expertise led to her specific field craft in the mindful movement where she has now become a thought leader. In addition to treating and teaching the elements of mindfulness to thousands of people all over the world, she also takes her own medicine, practicing mindfulness and fitness as a tool to help downregulate her mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Tia, she's widely known as a muscle skeletal health fitness expert, TEDx speaker, author, and former United States Marine Corps officer. After losing her mother to cancer at 10 years old, she developed into a young woman that held herself to a very high standard, a standard that's impossible. It's called perfection. As an all-conference D1 college athlete, national fitness competitor champion, and as a United States Marine. But with all these accomplishments masked a gnawing and growing chasm of anxiety and imposter syndrome. We will talk about all these things and more in this conversation. Teresa, thank you so much for being here, doctor. I love you. I love your work. I love everything that you're about. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Marcus. It's definitely an honor to be here. I've heard so much about you and read about you and part of your book so far. It's an honor. It's an honor to have somebody like you that stands up and does the work. It seems in society today, people see somebody as a warrior or as a this or a that, and they like to put us kind of in this easily identified categorical box. You look at David Goggins or Jocko or Brene Brown or any of these people, and you think that this is all that there are. There's this extreme area. But in order to get to those places where you had that deep understanding, whether it be a very warrior-like mentality or a very sympathetic and empathetic, compassionate capacity, you have to go through all of these areas. You have to go through all these layers. You have to unpack so many of these things for us to have this 360-degree view of those things. And I think a lot of people overlook that. Does that feel true? Well, absolutely. I mean, people only see what they see and they judge off of what they see. And what you see via social media or media isn't exactly the bigger picture. But even people in their own lives, they can look at a situation like, I just got a great job, but what led to creating that great job? Maybe a lot of hardship, maybe losing jobs and their appreciation for this great job. There's a reason there's a great appreciation for it because probably a lot of stuff has happened leading up to it. Maybe a loss of a job or getting fired or whatever. So I look at that in my own life because it's so easy to say, like, I do really where I'm at in life, but it wasn't always that way. There's been so many ups and downs and I'm so thankful for where I am. But the reason I'm so thankful is because I know what it's like on the other side of that feeling like, where am I going? What is my purpose? Who am I? Why am I sick? What did I have to lose a parent? You know, there's a lot of bad people out there. 
So I think that it's important to look for everyone to keep perspective on their life and situation. And when they see other people realize that what it took for them to get there was a lot and they're only seeing a small piece of that. And I think what makes someone a warrior, most people will look, oh, Marine, author, athlete, but it's all the things that led up to that and working through the loss of a mother and choosing to grieve and working through unresolved grief of losing my father and running a business that I didn't want to be in. And then literally transforming the entire business over the course of a year or two to be what I wanted it to be. And so that's what makes me a warrior. It's not, oh, I went to war. I did choose to join the Marines, but the choice to join and all those choices up until that point are what make me a warrior too. I absolutely agree. There's so many people that we see that have a bunch of tattoos and they have the most high-speed gear and they wear the shirts and they have stickers all over their trucks that say all these things that really have this kind of warrior idea. But even those people, the appearance from the exterior is that they are a warrior, but the warrior is the one that actually stands up for themselves, takes that accountability, that ownership, all of it, warts and all, and then says, okay, so what? Now what? Where am I going to go with this? And there are some people that you can see that may look like they are weaklings, if you want to say it like that. But yet those are the people that will stand up and fight till the burger for what they believe in. And that's what a warrior is. You stand up, you get to a point where you're pushed. The physical manifestation of adversity is an adversary. So you're pushed by something. It can be a physical person or it can be even resistance, like Stephen Pressfield says, and you either stand up or you bend the knee. And for most of us, there is that point where we're broken. It absolutely is. We have to be broken. But it's what we choose to do after that. It's what we choose to do continually after that that really defines the warrior. I agree. When I look back too, and I reflect on the, let's just say in business, for example, right? Post-military and creating a business, new business owner, not realizing I'm going to come across adversity in a business too. And working through that and like owning it and realizing some of my initial reactions weren't great in some circumstances, but choosing to like learn from it versus saying blame, shame others. It's like, well, what do I need to do differently? as a leader to make sure that I bring in the right people and am able to impact the audience that I want. And so that was not even military related. It's just real life, like running a business, having a family. It's like, okay, I've made some mistakes. I've definitely reacted versus responded to many situations, but the fact that I'm aware of that and now can respond better that's a warrior mentality. That's owning it. I think there's a strong victimhood and shame and blame in our society that could just manifest because of what's going on politically or whatever. People can place blame on anything and play a victim, but it's like, okay, well, where can you play a part? Where can you respond in this? How can you respond better and make the situation better than just reacting like many people around you? I've learned that the hard way so many times of that pregnant pause, it's really good before you react, right? You learn to respond. That's where you can use the breath or physically take a step back. But that ability to respond versus react, a lot that's, that's mindfulness in a nutshell, can change your life and can go from victim to warrior. Absolutely. Victor Frankl, right? Between stimulus and response, there is that space, that gap. I and mean, if we're willing to step into that gap, and I've noticed 
that, like you said, presence, emotional situational awareness, if you will, if you want to think of it like that, right? It's this ability to identify what's going on because without that awareness, it's impossible to even identify where the pattern, where the weakness is, where the chink in the armor is. And until we have that, it's impossible for us to go forward in an informed manner. And it's very easy for us with the kind of warrior idea, you did it as an athlete, where it's much easier for us to drive, to push, to march on than to actually take the harder step, which is to pause, to step back, to really examine, to acknowledge what's going on, to not just put our fingers in our ears emotionally and just try to run into something that will distract us from these other things that we're desperately trying to avoid. But then, as you know, with my experience, for me, adversity, there's two ways to deal with it correctly and again. And I have noticed that if I push it away, and then I try to move forward and I push it to the side again. Eventually, I just go around it again. And if I keep pushing it away, it eventually becomes the center of my universe. And I just revolve around it like a planet. And I'm in that orbit until we understand we have to embrace adversity. Not meaning that we have to embrace it and like overcome it. It means that we have to get through it. Sometimes we are going... Work through it. Exactly. And that's what it is. I think you mentioned that in your book, The Only Way. I think it was Robert Frost. Frost, yeah. The best way out is through. Yeah. So that is, in a nutshell, working through trauma. There's no way around it, only through it. You know, just like with grief, it's never, you've never arrived or it's like even success. How do you determine success? But there's no arrival in life. And if you think there is, your level of happiness, fulfillment, joy will just won't be there. I mean, you read any book by anybody who's extremely famous or not, they're rich and famous is not what makes them happy. So my business partner now, who's a retired Navy SEAL, when he came back from Operation Red Wing, he worked with a meditation. He shares a story, a psychologist who, I love this analogy of when you push things away and you don't face them, it's like that you send these feelings, this mentality down into the basement and they just start lifting weights and they just get bigger and bigger until one day you just, you blow up, whether it's you get in a huge fight or you know, you lose your mind on someone or it comes out as a disease, like a maybe addiction, but you stuff things down. It what happens when you stuff things down. Like if you fill up your basement full of stuff, it's just going to start to overflow at some point. I really like that visual because I find now when I'm dealing with something, like I just came from an event, I met all of these firefighters who were in the Oklahoma, they were the first responders in the Oklahoma city bombing. Many of them were the ones carrying the children out, right? And just that I wasn't even there. I remember it in 1995, but like seeing the pictures again, I mean, these men were now older, but seeing these pictures and remembering those moments made me very upset. I had spoken at this event and I came home and I was just a mess. I also didn't sleep well and that didn't help, but you know, I came home and I was a mess and I was like, why am I so upset? And I just... You know, I remember sitting down with my husband and I was like, I need to be with this. This is a breaking open moment for me, actually. And I actually worked with my therapist too. But I remember sometimes what my initial thinking was like, man, I don't want to feel this way, which is typical when you feel really upset about something. And then I realized, no, this is, this is it. I need to feel this. I'm glad I feel this because if I didn't, then there'd be probably something wrong with me. You know, I think like if I didn't have emotion around seeing these images and talking to these people who'd been through this. And so I'm really thankful for the work. I just needed the space. I needed to take a pause in my own life to like sleep and 
journal about it and work through it. And I mean, it's still there. Like I'm thankful I did the work and I'm doing the work. So just an example of, I could have just shamed myself and bottled it up. But like, instead of, I was just thankful for that. I'm thankful for the, some of the reactions I did have in the past, because now I know how to respond and I know how to be discerning about being around people who do the work too. That is really important. And that actually, I'll share with you, that's made a huge impact on my life because, you know, I've got my little boys and my little men and my husband, and then I have other people who I choose to be around. I used to just let myself be around anyone who wanted to be around me. It's like, oh, well, you want to work with me? Okay. You want, it's almost like, come on, everyone. And then I realized, wait a second, it's like some of our values are in alignment, are in alignment. And I let people in who didn't have similar values. But I got real clear on what my values were from that experience. That has helped me choose who I work with today and how I work. And it's made a huge impact. And so when I'm feeling like, what is wrong with me? And go down that shame pathway. I reach out to those people who are doing the work too. And it's like, you know, you're, you're in it. This is living. Remember that. Just like I do with them when they reach out to me. <laughs> so that's it. That's part of doing the work. And it's the pattern that we see. If we're in combat, we're taking contact. As soon as we're safe, now the shakes, now the adrenaline, now all this stuff, because what are we doing? Our body's trying to protect us at that time. So, like you said, you're there, you're the speaker, you're the leader, you're dictating the pace. You don't have that luxury of allowing that emotion to extend. But then when you get home, you're like, I'm safe now, I'm away, I'm in a safe environment, I can sleep. I can journal on this. I can let this out and cry and question and be pissed off and go through all the five steps of acceptance. And it's so crazy because how many people do we know that say, oh, you know, I'm finally got this vacation coming up and I get sick the first weekend I'm off work. I'm like, all right. So the first thing you need to do is just let yourself be sick and acknowledge that and be okay. And don't be pissed off that maybe your plans are not what you want because your body desperately needs that. And here's the other thing, as you and I know, if you don't do that, if you don't give yourself a little bit of space to let that steam off or vent your spleen, then your body will eventually say, listen, I'm going to give you a couple more weeks and then I'm crashing and I'm going to be worthless. And it may happen in the middle of a presentation when you're on stage. It may be when you're in the middle of a conversation. It may be when you're driving a car. You have to respect that. And that's the importance of having that in-depth touch of our emotions, not in a negative way, but saying, listen, there's something going on here. And if we just keep, again, pushing that away or putting our blinders in and trying to go around it, it doesn't serve us. And here's the other part too, as you say, as a leader, it affects your sons, it affects your husband, it affects your business partner, it affects the people that we work with. And like you said too, I did the same thing you did. When the TEDx came out in the book, it came out, everything kind of exploded and everybody was wanting to do stuff. And then I started realizing, like you said, some of these people just wanted to talk to the guy that was on stage or the guy that wrote the book. They didn't want to actually do the things that the guy that was on stage or wrote the book had to do. And I'm not saying that anybody has to go through severe trauma or have a life and death experience, but I am saying that until you take the work that you do seriously as a life or death experience, you will never uncover what you need to uncover. And again, it's always a work in progress, but if we don't take it seriously and attack it, again, when a warrior goes into combat, he understands that this is the most important thing. There is no other job. This is the job. There is no other day. This is the day because we don't have that luxury. Because if we do and we lose sight of that, usually it's not us that gets hurt. It's the guy next to us. 
Exactly. There's lots of different kinds of people and where they're at on their journey is who knows. I was reading the book, Jay Shetty, Think Like a Monk. I love it. My dad was a priest. That's another story. But it's the idea of not judging a moment necessarily has been really good. Has it been another like healthy distinction of, okay, well, so I remember getting interviewed for Warrior, having a ton of interviews. And it was very exciting because it was like the first time I ever like kind of really stepped into social media or anything like that. I remember the editor was like, yeah, you kind of need a website and you probably should have some social media. And I was like, okay. You know, I had some interviews from people that were fairly well known in the social media world, but just couldn't connect. And at the time it was upsetting and it can be upsetting when you come across someone who's just like, just wants attention or is very needy and just wants to be around you to be known. I mean, I worked with someone like that actually, which was very disheartening. But the point is at this stage of my life, age of 41, I'm wising up and learning as I go, but these people are in a different phase, different part of their journey. And it is just so. If I speak to this person who I have no connection with and doesn't really potentially show that they give a care about me, they only care about the book, maybe one of their listeners, it will impact. And that's what I think about for the person I worked with who just really needed attention, like constant attention. There's a sadness there. There's a struggle there internally. It's not, there's a mask there. And instead of being angry, which I used to be at this individual or situation, it's like, I actually feel for this person. They're seeking attention. People seeking constant attention and feedback is not going to create happiness. But the point is, is now looking back at all those interviews and just things I get to do now. I mean, with this, like just having this conversation is what I'm so thankful for. And if your listeners, if any of them are paying attention and can get something from this awesome, there will probably be many that it's like one year out the other, you know? And I know that I used to want to make sure everyone was listening and everyone is impacted and you're an idiot if you don't do something about it. <laughs> What's wrong with you? And then I'm like, wow, well, actually, like, let's look at me here. What, who am I to be judging this? And we have to be willing to meet people where they are, but we also have to be willing to leave them there if they don't want to come. We can have empathy for somebody and compassion, but we can still have enough self-esteem to keep up barriers to keep ourselves intact. We don't have to be an emotional doormat to allow somebody else to work on their stuff. And again, we can be there for a little while, but eventually, like you said, the power of the people that are around us, they say that we're the average of the five people that we're around, but we're not. We're the average of the five emotions that they evoke within us consistently. So if you're around people, yeah. So they either make us stronger or they tear us away. And I've learned as a coach as well, the same thing where I have a lot of people who reach out. I've turned down people that will are willing to pay me twice as much, but again, they're not a good fit. Like just the way I would talk to them, just the way I would challenge them in the initial conversation. I'm like, you need to work with me, but you are not ready to work with me. And you say no. And then they get back and they're like, I'll pay you twice as much. It's like, you don't have enough money to outspend the work that you need to do. And I don't know what it is that you need to do before you get there. But when you do come back to me and we will. And I've also found that Again, warriors, we, there's this physicality where we have this skill set. We do the battle drills. We know the ready-up drills, and we can transition with weapons and systems. We can do the battle six drill, but at the same time, there's so many more arenas with which we have to be able to apply that same discipline and skill set, whether it be emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. 
And so I do see a lot of people, like you said, that are incredibly successful and they believe that all this hard work and all these 80 hour weeks and giving up a relationship with their husband or their wife or their family is going to be fine once they get to this financial success and they get there and then they're like, shit, this is not what I thought I was going to be. And now in the meantime, this time has elapsed and now this gap between them and their family and their spouse and who they are is so big that they can't even see the other side. They can't even see the shore from where they're at. And now they're just waiting to keep themselves from drowning at this point. And they've lost a good portion of their life. You know, they've lost maybe even a relationship. So there is this distinction that I use in our work with like mindfulness and movement. When I do presentations, it always comes up. It's like the someday versus now. And this has been very helpful for me in terms of letting go of certain relationships, right? Or working through things. It's like, I can wait until I feel better about it. Like, is that ever really going to happen? When that person tells me they love me, I'll tell them back. We're playing a game with our life when we do that. And believe me, I've done it. I've done, done the whole, when someday I feel better, I'll go and do this. Or when someday I reach this level of success, which the success I was looking for was at one point in my life was not healthy. And when I took on the now, like, okay, I'm going to tell this person who is my family, I love them, regardless of what they told me back. And I'm going to forgive this person because holding on to the anger is not good for me. And it doesn't mean I have to have a relationship with the person I'm forgiving. It's just forgiveness is for me to give myself peace too. The someday of like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like starting my business. That was no problem for me to like start a business because I was just like, yep, nobody, not want to work for anybody. Gave my two weeks notice, boom, started my, it was not easy, but I have no problem jumping into something and doing it. Someday when I have this much financial success or where I put all these barriers or definitions around it, like you're always chasing and always waiting. And five years ago is a big change for me because I had my first child, Magnus. So another very strong name. Love that name. Yeah. So Magnus, he was born as a toddler, like 11 pounds. Just walked out of the womb. He's talking. He's got a full mouth of teeth. <laughs> yeah, basically. I was just like... <laughs> And I, I remember reading part of your book. So this is a great tangent about like what they were saying when you were in surgery, like people are just talking around you and you're like, what the hell is going on? So different situation, but in childbirth, it was like three days. I was working with midwives and they were like, yeah, your child's probably around eight and a half, nine pounds. Your body is meant to birth this baby. And I was just like, F everyone. I was so upset with the whole process. I was like, I think anyone listening who's given birth or seen it, it's like the most crazy experience. But I was like dissing the classes I took about pregnancy and breathing. I'm like, this shit doesn't work. But then I had to go into emergency C-section and he just wasn't coming out. And it was like too much time. There's compromising my health and the child's health. But I remember them laying there like, you know, numb but them just talking around me about this. Wow. It's really hard to cut into. You've got so much muscle. And I was like, and I was like, well, that's a compliment, but do you really have to talk out loud about this right now? Just get the baby out. So it was just an interesting experience. And, but the point is, is like that time of my life, I had my business that I didn't want to be in. 
and I was around the time I was giving birth to my son. And once I had him, I was like, all right, she's going to change like now. And I transitioned everyone on my staff. I just had to the location of my business, what the business was focused on. And it was very hard. It was like I was working with newborns when I had a newborn too, that kind of neediness. And I realized when I had my child, this is what's important to me. My family's the center of my world. It's important for them to also see me doing things that build me up, make me happy and make me healthy. And that's meaningful, but I wasn't doing that at the time. And so to transition all that with a newborn was a huge, very hard time in my life, but also very like, I look back and I'm like, yeah, this is what a warrior is about. But I didn't give up on my business, even though I was, again, making next to nothing, letting everyone go and just almost like starting over. But I knew it would work. I knew I could make it work. And I knew it would take time. And that was very hard, but it was one of the biggest, probably in my adult life now, another huge transition for me of really being discerning on who I wanted to be around. What did I need to do to bring about the kind of change that needed to happen in my business, as well as my family life? And I knew in order to be the mom I wanted to be, you know, present, which is what I wanted to be, not good mom, bad mom. It's like, just want to be a present mom and a present wife and there for myself. What did I need to do to do that? It was really healthy. And I look back, I smile because I'm, I get to see the people I'm around now and what it was like. I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) like that did happen. And I'm glad it did. And it takes that space. It takes that time, that experience to see the gift and the adversity. It takes that hindsight. And if we can have hindsight now, that's great. We know it, we write it down, but that's the reason why everything that we have in combat is simple because in the heat of battle and when you take contact, it all falls apart. You're in the fog of war. So we have to have these very simplistic ideals, almost this mantra that keeps us going forward to keep the priority, the priority. And these competing priorities, again, as you say, as we get older and we mature, or especially as we develop professionally, all these other areas, more people want to vie for our time. That's the nature of the beast. But again, it's up to us to decide what is the identity that I want to reinforce? Who do I want to be now? If all these things are a priority, then nothing is a priority. So what am I going to choose? What am I going to pour into? And oftentimes there's never balance. It's just about this capacity to adapt quickly because if you're taking care of your boys, but somebody breaks into your house, you're still a mother. But in this case, when they break in the house and you're grabbing a weapon, you're the protector, your mama bear. There's zero balance at that point. It goes out the window. You're a hundred, 10% here. But by having that capacity to transition, whether we be getting out of the Humvee or whether we be going from an emotional conversation to having a, a light conversation with somebody at lunch, those transitions are where everything is at. And we have to have the ability to do that and be sensitive to that because if we don't, everything is just very X, Y, Z, but all the stuff that's really important that happens in between there is lost on us. I agree. Time is our most precious commodity. My dad used to tell me that all the time. I used to give my time to just anyone. And, you know, over the last probably decade, realizing like, okay, where do I need boundaries from the phone, the computer saying no. I think children really helped me also be clear on like, I want to be present to them. So I never take calls when I'm with them. This is my time. I literally make my sure my phone and computer are in the silent mode during those times. 
And then even when I wake up, it's the first thing that I see, like all of those things, I'm learning to be much more mindful about it. When I have feelings that came up like the other week, when I came home from this event, I was speaking at and was very upset. My little one saw me crying and, and I just was like, I just experienced something really very hard and emotional. And this is why I'm sad. It's okay to be sad, you know, and just explain it to him versus being like, no, go away. I'm fine. You know, and I let him see that. But when you do practice this work, when you put up the boundaries, which are for your own, like, what do you value? So you make sure you have boundaries around those. So I value time. I value presence because presence leads. I'm happier when I'm present. I'm enjoying this conversation so much because I don't have all this other shit around me screaming at me, but it took me a while to learn that, like let go of the stimulus. Learning that I was introverted means it took me seven months. I just moved to Durango, a small mountain town to actually start like going into a community to train. I love doing CrossFit and other things, but I started to reach out after seven months of being here because I wanted just space to myself acclimate as I wanted to. Some of my friends I've made here are like, well, if you've really been a hermit the last, why did it take you seven months? I'm like, cause it took me seven months. That's just who I am. But more and more I learn about myself and that's a lifelong process. It's like green, you're growing, you're ripe, you're rotting. Like I'm always learning about myself and realizing lessening the stimulus, living more simply, honoring my need for time to myself and time away from people asking for it, being open about even to my community that I work with, with Movement RX, the guys I work with, it's like, hey guys, I'm taking off for 10 days. I don't want to hear from anyone unless it's an emergency. This is just where I'm at, you know, or this is a rough day. Let's talk in a couple days or, you know, just being very clear about needs, wants. And thankfully, you know, most of the people that I've brought into my inner circle, if you will, the five outside of my little boys and my husband get that. Right. And that took me a minute to find those people. But I think it came from the inside out for me, that transition, that change that I wanted in myself and needed. I was finally able to put like words to those values, what they were. And then it was easier for me to look into my community and say, how do I, I mean, that's basically how I use social media too is well, I'm talking about the things that I value and I don't really care to be honest, who follows what for me, that's what matters is this kind of stuff, the interpersonal connections I'm making, because this goes the furthest, but I'm everything I put out is about what, how I want to help people, what I value. And so that brings in people with the same values, mostly are people that want it. It takes us a while to find our voice. Being lost on our path is part of our path. Not knowing what our identity is in the moment compared to, again, how many athletes, how many warriors do we know that get out, whether it be knowing very few of us, lots of times an athlete gets hurt right now, their career is done. Like myself, anybody in the military, you're injured or you're medically retired, get out. Sorry, guys. It may take them a long time. It's a hurry up and wait progress. But it's, it's very much that way. You're, you're trying to figure out you're in limbo. All of a sudden they go, Hey, back your trash, you're out. And you're like, Oh, and now you sort of plan for that eventuality, but now it's real. Now we're here. So we have to be able to take that 
not only in stride, but then not allow that to be something that gives us the justification. You mentioned before how when your mother passed or even when your father passed, there were these feelings of your mother gave you a great piece of advice that life is not fair. And your father told you that, you know, time is precious. So we understand these things, but then if it creates a surgency in us and we don't know what to do with it. And now it's like, I should be doing something. I should be in this place. I'm not now. Then we become a victim. Now we're in this denial. Now we're in anger. Now we go through this cycle and we don't go through the five cycles of acceptance. We don't just go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance neatly. We start with one and then we backtrack and then we get a micro cycle of that. And there's no timeline. Like you said, if it took you seven months to go out in the community, it takes as long as it takes. If it took you seven years, it takes you seven years, but it takes as long as it takes. It takes a lifetime. Yeah. I think when you think of grief, those levels of acceptance, but that acceptance is a a lifelong thing. There's That's the thing that there's no arrival. And I'm, I'm sure you can, I mean, in your book and the way you live, you realize that, you know that there's no arrival in life. I think my mom's advice at a young age was always very helpful for me, depending on no matter what the phase of life I was in, whether I was, you know, my, the biofeedback meditation coach I worked with would call it unskillful, no matter how unskillful it was. That's like a nice way of saying maybe being idiotic or (laughs) stupid, but you're unskillful at times. Like I was an unskillful second lieutenant until paid attention to my gunny and staff sergeant and learned a lot from them. And I'm still in touch with them to this day. And a lot of my Marines, I was unskillful in running my business early on, but shoot, I was, my eyes were, I was awake, but you, no matter the hard times in my life, my mom saying life has to go on, right? That's the the reality of the, as hard as it is, it's hard to not judge in a moment that like, we're all going to die. <laughs> our kids are going to get older. Our parents are going to die. That's the fact, right? Like in the more we can just live now and not judge those moments of like me, yes, it can be sad that, you know, maybe you have a love, you're losing a loved one. Yes. It's no loss is easy, but live now. Don't let those worries and fears of life being unfair because it is at times. It just, why did your C5 rupture, right? Why did I, why did my mom die when there's some dirt bags out there, right? And all we can do is just live right now. Because at the end of the day, if you keep blaming or looking over your shoulder, reflection is still good, but like live your life almost like you have no tomorrow. Doesn't mean you have to go ape shit crazy. Just means like there's no someday. We don't, we don't actually know how long we have. So embrace the loved ones you do have while they're still here versus grieving them and they're still here. And my dad, I think when he would tell me time is precious, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in my twenties. Yeah. But it is like, I realize, you know, if I really if you look at the, my brothers they're they live in Sacramento. I live in Durango. How many more times will I actually see them in my lifetime? Right. Or how many more times will I see my in-laws? How many more heartbeats do I have? I don't know. So I'm just going to embrace life right now and make sure everyone I know that I care about, they know I love them. And that doesn't mean I have to go visiting everyone, but it does mean that I'm going to live intentionally right now because I really don't know if I have tomorrow, 
but I do know that the things I'm doing now with my family, what I'm doing is making an impact more for me the way I live my life and my immediate family and hopefully the people that I get to work with. But that's been real healthy for me to take on that. But remembering that in dark times of life is unfair, but keep going. Just got to keep going. And well, time is precious. So I'm not fixing everyone's problems. People have got to own their own, but I definitely can give myself boundaries around who, how much I can listen to others and what I can do. But the most important thing is that I can't do anything about what happened in Texas, but what I can do is right with the children, but I can do something here in my community, right? I can be present to that and I can be present to how I raise my kids. So those are the things that it's like you with mindfulness, it's not just gone from, it's gone from like a meditation practice and being thoughtful about how I eat to like literally where my attention is in moments, right? I can choose to think about all the stuff going on politically, or I can choose to focus on what is happening in my own family and my own community right here. That's everything. Like you said, we have to have, we have to pay attention to our intention with every idea that we're taking in, we're putting out. And I know that I want to be respectful of your time, but I'd like to talk just a little bit about some of the adversity that you went through when you were leading 80 Marines on a convoy in Iraq, because for those that don't know that your TEDx and your book are all about that. I don't want to have to spend a lot of time on it, but I don't want to gloss over it either because for you and I, that's what sort of was our defining moment. Our, that was our trial by fire, our, our dark night. And until we get to that place, it's hard for us to understand that. And I've had a lot of people, you and I have talked about this, how some people will come up to us and say, Oh, you're an inspiration or, or I've had some people to say, you know, I haven't been through the same thing you have, but dot, dot, dot. It's like adversity is not a competition, guys. We, we all go through it. We're all in this. But at the same time, a lot of people kind of are in this place where they haven't had the experiences that we have. And in some ways that's great. In some ways it's, it's a shame because they haven't had something that kicked them in the ass, something that really pushed them that stripped them down to their, yeah, to their soul, right? Like to where they're bare and they see all this stuff. They're like, God, I don't like any of this. It's okay. There's always something that we don't like, no matter how good we are, there's always stuff we don't like. But until you're willing to take that courageous decision to get there, you're not going to even know not only what's down there that you don't see in the basement, the lifting weights, and even that analogy, what's in the basement attracts more other things down there that you don't want, right? So, but then it's also the ability to not only let that out, but to also to see, okay, if I don't see this, then that means there's all this beauty that I'm not seeing. There's all these opportunities, there's all this capacity that I'm completely oblivious to if I don't have the ability to, to take that kind of a hard look. Yeah. Well, speaking of not being able to take a look around, like I, so in the Marines, I'll paint a picture for everyone. So I remember you shared this in your book too, Marcus, about like needing external reinforcement for self-assurance, right? And that, that definitely, I think that's kind of bred in the military culture can be because you're, you got fit reps and everyone's opinion, peer reviews, shit like that. But yeah, so, I mean, growing up, it was, everything was a competition, with my family, like growing up with two older brothers and my dad, it was, everything was a competition. 
And I mean, basketball, we played basketball on the weekends, you know, and it was like two on two and it usually turned bloody and there's tears. And I was shown love when I did well with things with, with school or sports. And I was also shown attention from the community, put in the papers and people would say, wow, you're such a good athlete or, and I loved, and I got that feedback as a young woman. And honestly, I didn't really, in, in terms of friends in high school, I was actually just back at my high school. So it was very bizarre. I was giving a talk. Oh, wow. And <laughs> you know, and I, I was, I think I had one friend in high school. I, I like the teachers were my, were my saving grace. I was a very good athlete and known for that, but I kept to myself and my friend, my, my one friend from high school, she ended up going to MIT and like, she's an amazing doctor now. And so it's been kind of cool to also hear from other, more of my classmates, but either way. So high school was a time when, you know, I got a lot of attention in the press and about being an athlete, but like, I felt very alone. You know, I was doing work, study, driving a yellow van to school that I'd hide up on like the top of it. I went to this very like middle to upper class school where everyone seemed to be driving BMWs at the age of 16, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck? Excuse me if I, <laughs> You're um, fine. Let it out. but the, the, yeah. So there was this image that I had, like I, I had to be a good athlete in order to get praise. I had to be dressed a certain way, do good in school. I mean, that was reinforced. The school was more reinforced at home, right? My dad really wanted me to do well in school and really wanted me to do well in sports. And, and he was doing the best he could as a single father with all this. And then take that into college. I mean, I was recruited to play a number of universities and went to Villanova, but like this pressure of, okay, now I'm, I've got a Marine course, a scholarship for NROTC to be a Marine. And then, you know, scholarship for softball. So I had like these two big things that were paying for my private school education. And both of them required a ton of my attention. Oh, and then academics. And it was like, all these things were pulling at me. And I just was overwhelmed all the time, like all the time. And so, but, but I noticed like my mood was great when I won games because everyone loved me when I won a game and the pitcher, I was a pitcher. So everyone, you're the center of attention in softball as a pitcher, I'm a baseball too, but more in softball. Like if you ever watch softball versus baseball, it's way more engaging, just saying but it's, it's a very fast game and you win the game. The pitcher is like the most amazing person. And then if you lose a game, it's like, what happened? The pitcher just lost it. It's like, it's not all about the pitcher all the time, but it, in, in college, it was my mood, but you could see my mood would fluctuate with the season and how we were doing. And so my emotional health was a roller coaster pretty much my entire young life. And I'm sure if you, people really take a step back and look back, maybe they can relate to that. Just growing up can be challenging. No parent's perfect. And, but I found once I lost my mom, there was this disconnect in society I felt and maybe a story in my head, but also a feeling from friends. Like I went from being a social person to not social from having friends at the age of 10 to not having friends. And so to gain attention, I did well in these other areas. I had to do, I told myself I had to do well. And I think I even like read a quote, like words can, you can place so much meaning on words, which I don't do as much anymore. It's just, just words. But I remember reading, I would read like books on supplements 
like in high school and like would try to dial in my nutrition and exercise. And I like trained like Navy SEALs in high school. And then so I remember reading this quote by Michael Jordan. He's like, society only notices winners. And I was like, okay, there you go. I got to be a winner. And so I took that literally, took that literally. And so leading into the Marine Corps, now that was just like pressure of there's even more pressure now to perform that I put on myself too, but also like we're going to war. I chose to sign up to go to war. I'm a platoon commander. I was running an engineering platoon and there weren't as many women in the engineering space in the Marines, let alone the Marine Corps at all. But then now we're going to be deploying and I'm going to be doing things in a combat environment that women weren't really acknowledged to do yet. And I'm saying that because at the time I was like, well, I'm just, I'm a Marine like anyone else. But looking back, like this is the reality. I was doing things that my gender technically weren't even allowed to do yet. But so there's just a lot of pressure that I put on myself, but I didn't know how to handle it either. And the natural pressure of the job, right? Of having to, to work with a lot of equipment and working with explosives and humans. And I didn't know how to take care of myself. And so what turned into, there was an obsession that happened around food and it'd been, it'd been growing throughout my entire college career too, of this need to control my food and control my exercise because, well, that's something I could control. Everything else fell out of control. Right. Yeah. So then in the Marine Corps, it just, the pressure just escalated, still didn't have any skills on how to handle this anxiety and pressure I was dealing with. And so this food obsession and exercise obsession turned into then addiction. So bulimia, which was exercise and food. So that, but I didn't want to, you know, it's food. Like in my mind at the time, it's like, well, food, like who's going to get in trouble for food? And why am I even caring about this? This is just a food issue and I'm not going to pay attention to it because what matters more is the Marines I'm working with. And so that I was more fearful of letting them down than anything else. And I was like, well, kind of like the way society can perceive eating disorders. Well, I'm, it's just a food issue. No big deal. I'm not drinking or doing drugs. Right. But I, I, I it became a pretty serious thing. Like I was hurting myself. I'll just say that because it could be triggering for anyone listening, hurting myself often enough where people around me noticed the guy I was dating noticed my roommate noticed and my roommate happened to be the doctor of the battalion, you know, oh, our wow. battalion. And she was like, you need to go and get help. And I got help under the rug, like from a psychologist who wasn't going to put me on the record. She's like, here, I'm going to help you. Didn't help much to be honest. Cause I didn't really, I didn't want the help. Like I just, I wanted to prepare for deployment and I didn't want anything to get in the way with it. But at the end of the day, what do I do with all these feelings and things that have come up from the day, right? Getting my Marines ready for combat to include myself at the end of the day, I was trashed literally mentally and I didn't know. And so I, the eating disorder was my go-to thing I could control until it became a monster, right? And so in all of this, I thought, well, deployment will fix this because I'm going to be so busy doing other things, more important things than focusing on this, that it'll go away. And so I deployed 
as any good Marine would, who's focused on their people. And, and I also, at the time, 22, I was not going to be that woman who was not deploying because of some stupid reason. That's what's going on in my head. And obviously people don't deploy for a lot of reasons and they're not stupid, right? Like, but the, I judged that at the time. And so I deployed and I was running missions. So my, my job as a Marine was working. I ran an engineering platoon. So I would task Marines to like recon units or special, special operations or EOD, maybe EOD. I had the couple of women that came with me. They were doing vehicle checkpoints, checking Iraqi Arabic women coming through our vehicle checkpoints, building vehicle checkpoints, doing landmine clearing missions. I was also a female insurgent escort. So when the Delta Force or Navy SEALs would find a female insurgent, I would be the one, one of the women that would pick them up and take them back to their village. Because women obviously are more property over there and having any man touch them let alone keep them as prisoner could be a big problem for what we were trying to build, which was a democratic state. So yeah, there's just a lot of serious stuff going on. And me thinking that this beast that I was pushing down into the basement, right. And it was just getting bigger and bigger would go away when I deployed was, I was wrong. It became a lot worse. So any moment I had would be hurting myself in that way. And so eventually my dad wrote me some beautiful letters and I, one of them said to me, cause I, I'd, I'd share with him what was going on and I could not, not share it on the sat phone. I told him, he's like, the irony is you're at war, but you're more at war within yourself right now. And the Marine Corps will go on, but you may not, if you continue down this path, granted it's hard to overdose necessarily on food, but the level of focus and the intention and what, what you're doing with your body and mind, you can mess someone else's life up to include your own. Cause I'm not just running missions. I'm not sitting at a desk. So I decided to ask for help after one, you know, long mission that I'd run putting up polling sites during the first Iraqi election. And I just realized my mind, my body, everything was, I was just off and it wasn't fair to my Marines for me to be at 60 or 70% as their leader. And then it wasn't fair to me either, but I didn't want to acknowledge that yet because I didn't matter as much to, as they did to me, as the Marines did to me. So asking for help, I went into my captain's office and told him, and he was like, Oh yeah, my girlfriend had that, had some kind of eating issue, you know, and I got all different, you know, different responses from everyone I spoke to. I'll save some of that, but basically just had to, to convince my leadership, like I need help, like legitimate help. This isn't fair to anyone. I'm out on a mission. I have three different radios, a hundred different Marines I'm in charge of, and I can't focus. Like it's not fair to them. Like I am thinking about hurting myself while I'm on these missions and I need to be present on these missions. Like I'm 60% there and 40% over here. And that's just not okay. And so they, the Marine Corps, most services know what to do with alcoholism and stuff like that. But when it comes to something a little bit irregular like this, which isn't irregular, actually, it's pretty common. They don't know what to do. So I think I had to really push to be brought home, which was the hardest experience. I actually write about that in Warrior. It's just, it was one of the hardest experiences and, and embarrassing and just 
humbling I've ever been through because it was like this almost loss of this image I was putting up, right? I had this image. I had to be the perfect Marine, be perfect on my missions, the perfect athlete, the perfect daughter. And now all of a sudden I'm not that. And then who it was stripped away. Right. So what am I now? And now I'm left with this disease. And so I come home and by no means was greeted with like open arms because it's like, well, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. You look fine. You're walking around. My husband has to deploy because of you. Thanks a lot. Wow. Things like that. And the military could definitely do some, do some good in like teaching people how to respond versus react. Right. We all could, but looking back, like that was one of the hardest experiences, but one of the most humbling. And I always, whenever I'm having a hard time going through something, I, I look back at that and like, I've gone through that. I didn't know who I was, but I found out who I was and I'm continuously finding out who I am. And that opened my eyes to what does Teresa want? What does Teresa need? What makes Teresa happy? And why is Teresa always looking external for reinforcement versus inside? And sometimes I'll catch myself still doing that, but I'm aware of it and I'm aware of it. Okay. Well, I actually don't need that person's reinforcement. I'm I'm good to go. And that whole experience was humbling to say the least and eye-opening, but very healing for me. And it took years to kind of get to a place where, all right, what can I work on next that's purposeful, purposeful? And but being able to to look at what Teresa wanted needed made me realize I want to be in the medical industry and I want to work with people on their movement. I love movement. My mom passed from breast cancer. So it was like a time for me to reflect on, well, I'm honoring her by being in the medical industry. Yes. And that's a wonderful purpose. I'm still serving people and in a way that makes me happy. And then building my business allowed me to serve people in the PT medical realm in a way that was healthy for me and my family. So it's been this constant just growth of what do I need? to be able to serve others, but also first and foremost, be healthy. So the other thing is shedding the need for people to like me or pers- reinforcement has been really important. I think the five years ago, people I was around, it was a lot of FOMO type, right? Where I got caught up in that. And that was eye-opening for me again, of like, I'm not in combat anymore. (laughs) And also this is my business. (laughs) I can choose now to say goodbye to these people and bring in a whole new group of people who know how to connect and are in a different phase of their journey. They've realized that that doesn't go anywhere, right? It doesn't make them happy. But I, you know, every once in a while, I still get kicked in the ass on these things. Like, oh yeah, remember it's, it's not about what other people think. It's about what you think. That's what matters the most. And I have to say this, the realizing that this journey, like even though all that stuff happened, it makes me so appreciative of my health and life now and what I do and the service members I connect with who are mindful, empathetic leaders. That's really important to me. I worked with some not, maybe they are now, but at the time, not so empathetic leaders. Right, because that environment makes it difficult for them to, because we understand now that everything's compartmentalized. 
They're getting their leadership orders that are coming down. They don't give a shit about what you think or about where you guys have gone. Fucking execute. Let's get this done. We don't have the luxury of you being tired or not being in the mood or whatever. That's what warriors do. Well, there is that component. But like you said, there's the person that has to come home. And even like you were saying, this external validation ideal, I have found from martial arts in my entire life of all of our experiences that you will never find any sort of validation or permission until you no longer need it. And at that point, it doesn't even matter, like irrespective of any of that stuff, because if you're working towards this thing that brings out the best in you, only then are you going to get that sort of external validation. And like you said, it's nice when you get it, but that's, that's just like, yeah, that's the bonus. It's like, I'm still going to do what I'm doing. Yes. I'm still going to do all the things that got me here. But yet, if we're looking for that external validation or hoping somebody will give it to us, you will wait your entire fucking life. You will. And you will never get where you want to go. Absolutely. Just like people waiting for motivation. If you're going to wait for motivation to do anything, you're going to probably wait your whole life. But it is, it's the biggest success I found, which is enjoying the present, the precious present. That's success to me. Yes. Is that now that I'm living, right? And doing this work and having, I mean, whether I'm, there's no considerations of what is this person going to think of me or what is this? I shouldn't reach out to that person because X, Y, Z or whatever considerations we put in our mind, right? Well, I followed up too much or I don't make as much as them. Like all that shit. No, the more I embrace the moments that I'm advocating for the adaptive athlete or I'm speaking in front of a group of first responders and sharing them pieces of my story and way movement has been the best medicine for me as well as mindfulness. I love it. And it's like being in it and doing it. I'm not doing it for the paycheck or the need, just like the check in the box. It's like, this is awesome. The fact that I get to talk to these people and sharing and advocating for these people. And, and that's where a lot of the reinforcement has come from, but I'm not looking for it. And I'm much happier. And it's a wonderful process. Like I'm loving developing work. And I don't care if you're a celebrity or not, or you're, I'm connecting with all kinds of different people and there's no consideration of your status or how much you make, or it's just, this work is meaningful and I'm making a difference. And best of all, it's making a difference in my life. It's living. This is living to me. And so it's wonderful to be in this place and also reflect like I'm doing here about wasn't always that way. So I could not wait till missions were over. Do you think I like, didn't really enjoy doing landmine missions. It's like, well, let's do it and get it done with. <laughs> yeah, get back to behind the wire. But that's that was the time, right? Like that's in the service, you have a mission, mm-hmm. you do it. I mean, it's not all peaches and cream, nor is it supposed to be. But the enjoyment you can find in it is the people that you're with. That's it, the brother next to you. And, and the work of leading those people versus the work itself. And, and it's finding that joy and fulfillment in something you're doing. Because maybe you're working at a call center and you're like, ah, well, I don't really, really enjoy any of this. Well, find something, the people. You can find something fulfilling in what you do. That's it. Or you find something else that's fulfilling. Find something else to do. I agree. Where can we get your book? Where can we learn more about more Movement Rx? Where can we learn about everything you're doing to work with you, to see you speaking? to understand more about what you guys have going on. I could talk to you forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. Well, now we're lifelong friends, Marcus. So yeah, absolutely. Does that have to be on a podcast? Absolutely. So you can find out more about me at movement RX, movement-rx. So we've got 
a couple things coming up. So in September, we have a retreat here in Durango that we're running September 16th to the 19th. I'll get you those links too, Marcus, but please you can look up our mindfulness and movement experience that I run with my colleague, who's a retired Navy SEAL, John McCaskill. So him and I, he runs the emotional health side of it, actually, the mindfulness. And then I do the physical piece, which is a nice kind of marriage of the two practices, mind-body. And so we run these experiences. The next one will launch in September as well. Okay. So it's we've got some time, but it's usually, you know, a lot of the programs we have are, they're at different times of the year. So it's not just an all the time thing. Right. The book you can find on Amazon quite easily. and. Well, LinkedIn is where I'm most active. So Dr. Teresa Larson on LinkedIn. That's her. Everyone go follow her. Go see what she's up to. If you want to know what somebody believes, observe their actions. And she's truly living this. She has lived this. But more importantly, she's continuing to do it and to step into not only the the woman that she is, but the warrior that she's always been. And she's helping others in the process. And I can't thank you enough for your time, Teresa. Uh, thank you, Marcus. The same, I was really looking forward to this podcast. And thank you for what you do too. We're on the same mission. Yeah, true. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.